It is a joy to be with you this Lord's Day and in the pulpit to look at Psalm 8 on this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. Thank you, Vicki. A month ago, I preached on Mother's Day, and I did say at the outset I would aim to be brief so that all the mothers could get to their well-deserved lunch reservation. I have no such intentions today. (laughs) Fathers, those hot dogs will be waiting for you. And just as naturally and nutritionally superb whether it's an hour late or not, in all their sodium nitrate glory. (laughs) I do mention Mother's Day because the theme that morning uh, when we talked was, what is a woman? And when I was, it was probably back then, I was thinking ahead to Father's Day and thinking, could I complement that with a message on what is a man? But I knew we were in the Psalms, and so uh, a line from Psalm 8 came to my mind, what is man? that you're mindful of him. Now, that's not exactly the same question, what is a man versus what is man. One's asking the question of all of our humanity collectively. The other is saying, um, specifically, how have you made man in the image of God different from woman? But I decided to go with it anyways. It's not a primary text, Psalm 8, for addressing biblical masculinity, which is distinctively the call for all men to be leaders, and lovers and learners, laborers, those are the distinctives of biblical manhood. But there is a distinct call today in Psalm 8, a fundamental mandate for men, and an echo of the earliest command for men to subdue the earth in Genesis 1.27. And uh, we found when we looked at that a month ago that we could not do that by ourselves. So God provided a suitable helper. But this is, in Psalm 8, a good reminder to all the brothers this morning, married, single, whatever state you find yourself in, God has designed you, brother, to be a steward of every gift of grace He's given you. And to steward whatever He has given you under His leadership and for His glory. And not to your own. Not to your own, but to God be the glory. So this morning we will listen in in Psalm 8 on a conversation between David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and his creator as he sits underneath the stars, maybe on a summer night. Follow as I read. Psalm 8 for the choir director on the Gittith, Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, the son of man? that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Starlight, star bright, first star I. Yeah, good job, poets. I wish I may, I wish I might have this wish. I wish tonight. You're all a bunch of Billy Shakespeare's. Has a starry summer sky ever inspired the Shakespeare or the Dickinson or the Walt Whitman in some of you? Have you ever sat out underneath the stars after a dog day of summer has faded into the cat's meow of night? Have you sat there and looked up and been inspired? It would do your soul good 
Clyde Kilby, an English professor at Wheaton College in the 1970s and 80s, had a list of practices, I guess in today's vocabulary, we would call it um, self-care, but it was a list of resolutions to keep a healthy mind. One of them was this, at least one time every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above and about me. That seems to be the tone and the tack that David has taken here in Psalm 8, looking up at the moon and the stars to see and to savor the matchless majesty of God. That's the feel of this psalm. The setting you see there in the subscript that's in the original text, so whether or not David wrote for the choir director on the Gittith, the Psalm of David, or whether in the first copying of this into the psalm book, as was mentioned last week by Ronald, when some of the scribes came later, and, and we even have evidence later in Chronicles that maybe David had his hand in arranging the first two books of the five books of the Psalter, that um, those subscripts were added at the top to, to put a setting you know, where this might have taken place. Psalm 7 has one, when David sang to the Lord concerning Cush. This doesn't have a setting, but does have an author, a psalm of David. And it does have a, um, a musical direction. You could see there in your Bible, it says, for the choir director. So, like we've said before, psalms meaning praises. This was meant to be sung and led amongst the corporate body of Israel. And then on the Gittith... As mentioned last week, some of these words we don't have exact translation for. We know that the Gittites were people from Gath. We know that from other texts in the Old Testament. So we know David also hung out around Gath, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. And so on the Gittith could be referring to um, maybe a little tune he picked up there in his time. And it's also in Psalm 81 and 84. And all of those psalms seem to have a little bit of a joyful feel to them. And that, that root word in the Hebrew for gath has to do with a wine press. So maybe think of uh, this could have been a melody that was set to some time of celebration. Like a feast of weeks, feast of booths in the history of Israel, the mood is joyful. We could say like a dancing in the moonlight, some of you know that. Or if you're a more subdued joy, a moonlight sonata. I report you decide. Either way, we learn from this subscript that David wants his people to praise. The question is, What? And we get that in our first point for you to hang a hat on today in verses 1 and 9. This is an inclusio in poetry. For the lay person, a sandwich, as I've alluded to before. We know that because David repeats the main point of this psalm in verses 1 and 9. And it has to do with point 1, the immensity of God. Both times you see it repeated, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He sets that proposition out at the beginning and proves it by the end. So there you go. That's the structure, and it's also the main point. There are some psalms that are harder to understand and find the main point at than others. I'm giving you a low-hanging branch today. You can't miss it. This psalm is about praising the excellence and exalting in God's majesty. And so David arranges it to prove that point in verses 1 and 9. But then look from that forest picture to the tree. The first tree you meet is not just what we're praising, it's actually who? O oh Lord, our Lord. That's, that is the heart, the object of the affection of David looking up on this evening is to think of his God. And those words, when we hear them to our ear, and maybe you remember them from that CCM jam of the 90s, Oh Lord, our Lord, how many... 
majestic. Some of y'all know it. Now you'll be singing it in your heart the rest of the time. It's a great jam. But what was, what's lost in that is you just feel like you're just kind of repeating the same word. Oh, Lord, our Lord, because it is the same word, except it's not. You could see it in your Bible. One is all caps, and then the other is not. And that means that those are two names, two titles to give to the God of David. The first one, all caps, is Yahweh. It's the proper and personal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. And that first appears in Genesis chapter 2 when on day 6 there's a zoom in and at the height of creation in man, he's called Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. The personal God, the God who is from beginning to end. And that's the first name on David's lips when it comes to giving praise to God. Instructive, isn't it, to our hearts? That at the heart of all of our praise is the person of God, Yahweh, our personal God. Yes, as Ronald mentioned last week, there is a transcendence of God and in his greatness and glory overall, but there is an imminence, a closeness. And that's the proper name, the personal name, all caps, O Lord. But then, our Lord, this now moves from the word uh, for Yahweh to the word Adonai. And that is the word for a powerful ruler. A master is probably the best translation. So doesn't this hit different now when we say or hear David say, O Yahweh, our master. Not just, O Lord, our Lord, which we're so used to hearing in our mundane prayers before we have our meal. Thank you, Lord, for the food. But, O Yahweh, our master, both the personal name of God and yet in the transcendence of it, our King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. I guess how that hits different is when you maybe even put it into relational terms. If last month on Mother's Day I uh, saw Shannon and just said, Oh woman, my woman. <laughs> okay, that's all right. But if I said, Oh Shannon, my wife. It's personal, isn't it? She's Shannon. She's Shan to me. My wife, now that describes her primary relationship to me. And that's what David is doing in this opening, about to talk about the immensity and majesty of God, that transcendent God, that glorious God, is a personal God to him. Our. That matters too. Because salvation, as Luther said, is in the personal pronouns. He's our Lord, and uh, that reminds me of another relationship in my life. One of my uh, twins, toddlers, three-year-olds, as his vocabulary becomes expansive, from time to time will turn to me and say, Dad, you're my dad. I think that's usually in the presence of his brother when they're fighting over something and he wants me to side with him. Or if it's not that, usually it's followed, Dad, you're my dad, with, can I have a cookie? So I get it, I'm being hustled, and by child number five, I'm totally down with it. <laughs> Our Lord, mentioned last week, mentioned intentionally today in the Lord's Prayer. It's always good to remember our Lord's Prayer starts with our Father in Heaven, not just mine, because that highlights the Godness of God. He can be all of our fathers at the same time. Great way to differentiate between our limited, frail human capacities and God not limited in any way. Last week on vacation at the beach, five kids to watch over in and around the ocean. And yes, I am father to them all at the same time, but I can't be in equal measure, particularly when they all want to go in the ocean at the same time. And it hit me as I was... You know, with my 10-year-old giving him a little more leash, if you will, not a literal leash. My mom actually put me on one of those when I was at the beach as a kid. Imagine that. <laughs> so he's out there, and I'm giving him, and I could take my eyes off of him, but then I'm helping the nine and the seven body surf, and then the threes are running up into the, I got to pick them up before they get knocked down and around. And it hit me how limited I am with just 
How many? Five. God's doing that with five billion. It's attention on all of them. That's the godness of God. That's his immensity. And so praise for David begins with this personal and powerful calling on God. Well, what is so wonderful and worthy of praise? It's right there after he gives him his titles. How majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens? It's his majesty. It's his splendor. He is mighty and magnificent. He is awesome and almighty. He is powerful and prevailing. He is splendid and sublime, elevated and exalted. If David could come up with more words, he would have put them in there. In short, If you can name it, God is it when it comes to his magnificence. There is no way to be short on praising God. Why? Because of the immensity of his glory. The enormity of his glory. The vastness of his glory. When David is praising God, he runs out of words, but God will never run out of worthiness to our words. If you can come up with another word that pulls from some of these words, majestic and splendid and put them together, blended or spajestic, do it if it describes him truthfully. It's the godness of God. It's the infinite possibilities of all of his wonders. And and that's whether it's thinking about who he is in his character or also what he does in his works. I mean, who he is in his character really is limited by what we can think about in our minds and and, and abstract and, and concepts. And so we give words like majestic. But then it's also... I mean, really, when you think about it in in the universe in which he has created, that's the unlimited part that we can actually see and fathom and goes from concept to reality. It's just we have a lifetime down here and then eternity to see all the wonder of the worlds he has created. Worlds beyond worlds beyond worlds. And I am, you know, I'm no scientist or anything close to it. So I could have spent all week writing one of those sermons where I talk about if you take the earth and it's the size of a ping pong ball and the universe is hickory. Okay, you, you can find that on your own. You don't even need to read it from religious writers. Go read the most secular atheistic scientist. And you know what we all agree on? There is no end to the amazing, infinite wonder of our universe and universes beyond universe and for me and then the ones within and it's not just because I watched quantum mania lately and I'm like what universes inside of universes it's not real but who knows the amazing part of the smallest molecular structure to the vastness of the universe that just see makes our hearts look out and say is he is he just in the best of ways a father does this with his children playing with us Just putting one new thing in our minds after the next thing to make us say, wow, he created that? But what what else has he created that we have barely even scratched the surface of? Brings to mind Job 26, 13 to 14, when Job, without National Geographic and NASA and Hubble telescopes, could write this in Job 26, 13 and 14. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. You know what that means? The fringes of his garment. That's all we know. That's all we know. And that's at most, at best, we have seen the fringes, the hem of the garment of the glory of God in all creation. And then he says, and how small a whisper do we hear of him? Think about the closest relationship you have with a person on earth. And um, if they were only to whisper to you one thing about themselves, and that's all you had to go on your whole life, how much more there would be to know about them. This is what Job is writing in the inspired word of God. We have but seen with our eyes 
the fringe, the hem, a, a strand, one single, one single thread from his garment. And we have but heard just a tiny whisper of his majesty here while we are on earth. That's the immensity of God. And David meditates on this glory and greatness. And all he could put together is how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So out of that, to help our worship of God this day and this summer, maybe one immediate and obvious takeaway this morning is be amazed by the God that's greater than you. One wonderfully humbling reset for my soul is to remember how majestic is God's name in all the earth. That God alone is worthy. It was the summer maybe of 2008 or 9. I was in my maybe end of first year of seminary. I was waiting tables, making meatballs and serving them to the glory of God. They were the size of your fist. Really an impressive piece of meat. And um, I had a table come in one night, and um, I don't know how the conversation got there, but it was dad's wife and a couple kids, and as I, you know, tried to ride that fine line between annoying the customer, but also working the tip and, you know, giving them good service, um, I think it got on the subject of he wanted to know what I do, and he was expecting me to say, you know, next big thing, right? Hollywood. But by that point, I was far from that. I was in seminary. And so I said, you know, I did come out here to act, but now here I am going to seminary to be a preacher. And so I think that's where it went down the path of maybe he said he was in ministry at some point. And, uh, you know, you go back and forth and you talk to them here and there. And uh, at one point, I don't, it was probably near the end, uh, he asked me a question. He said, Adam, that's all, that's all great. It's really cool to hear you're one of those who you know, came here and God takes you on a different path. But he asked me a question. He goes, Adam, um, why are you a Christian? Wow. Let my first year of seminary study cook something up for you right here on the spot. And so I think I started with some apologetic for God's existence and then into, you know, Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And I'm, you know, of course, a first-year seminary student, waxing eloquent on why I'm a Christian. All the evidences that point to the reason that I'm a Christian. Maybe within like a minute or two, because I still had to get drinks for other tables. And um, he's nodding and he goes, oh, okay, that's cool. And so I felt like I should return serve. I said, well, why are you a Christian? And he said, because he alone is worthy. So I took out my ledger that I record, you know, people's uh, orders on and wrote that one down. I actually didn't need to write it down. It stayed here. That's a good answer. That might be the best answer. When someone asks you, why are you a Christian? Because he alone is worthy. That says it all, doesn't it? Uh, that puts you as the creature in right relationship to your creator. And he's not just worthy because of the difference between creature and creator, but the distance that his son Jesus Christ covered in his redemption. He alone is worthy. Father, Son, and Spirit. That helps to have a heart like David's to praise the majesty and splendor of God and to make that transcendent and immense God suddenly personal and close to us. That he alone is worthy of our praise, particularly in a day and age where we are cursed with uh, what maybe started as a movement in the 80s for self-esteem, you know, Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. Maybe a tenth of you get that reference. Strike from the record. But this idea that really goes from a rather neutral category of self-esteem. It can be good, it can be overdone. To now the category today of what? Self-love. Why do I say that this past week? Two different news feeds. I, they find me, I don't find them. Of a 
Woman marrying herself. Headline out of Ohio newspaper. 77-year-old Ohio woman marries herself in celebration of self-love. That's what I mean about the self-esteem movement gone bad. And the other article I came across, um, younger woman, but um, the culmination of the ceremony was her looking into a mirror in front of the crowd and kissing herself. Self-love. When you've become the center of what? Your own affections in the universe. And then that is completely turned in, as the reformers would say. A soul turned in on itself. When it is to be turned out, as Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. We're, we're glory stealers and we're to be glory givers. So I think that immediate obvious takeaway But perhaps just a word to the men today on this Father's Day, married or not, young or old, take a cue for our existence as men. Uh, One of these foundational points to strong biblical manhood from Psalm 8. Brothers, whatever station you find yourself in this morning, as great as you are made in the image of God, you're not God. Therefore, Teach your family or those you disciple to be amazed by God, not you. I'm not talking about faux humility, pretending to deflect when you secretly crave. I'm talking about, brothers, daily modeling to other people around you a life of worship that points upward. What I'm saying by this is, do you live a life, brothers in here, that points Inward or upward. That even in your service to others, you could be trying to get the glory for who? For you versus living such a life of worship that preaches with your actions, God alone is worthy. I promise you that if you live a life in front of others where you're more amazed by God and not amazed with yourself, men, Others will see it, even if you're not the best at saying it. They'll see it. But when you deflect, rather than try to what? Take it for yourself. It can be easy for us men to be glory stealers. We have to fight it at all costs. So walk humbly before your God and worship Him alone. Well, that's the first point, the immensity of God. There's plenty of opposition to worshiping God today. We see it in the next verse, verse 2. And then that verse, we find God's surprising solution to glory stealing, the invincibility of God. Look at verse 2. Skip past that first part of it to the second. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease, uh, you see a threefold opposition to worshiping this immense and majestic and splendid God. You have adversaries and enemies and vengeance seekers, all synonyms for sinful man who doesn't want to bow before God in humble worship. Now, why I want to set this up is because Psalm 8, um, as I mentioned earlier, has been arranged in an order. And, and there is a good chance, as we learn from later in Chronicles, that David might have had his hand in taking some of these songs he wrote and putting them in a particular order. And 3 through 8 all are Psalms of David. Psalm 1 and 2, we're not sure, but Psalms 3 through 8, you'll see a Psalm of David, a Psalm of David. And where David is in these uh, 3rd through 7 Psalms is a place of a lot of opposition to God and to himself. Just a sampling to uh, establish this concept that him's talking about adversaries and enemies, he's not pulling out of thin air. This has kind of been uh, his issue in Psalms 3 through 7, right out of the gate in Psalm 3, 1. Oh, Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. So the first psalm we hear of David in the 150 psalms is one of this 
I've got a lot of enemies. And if they're my enemies, then they're obviously your enemies because they're trying to take up arms, as Psalm 2 says, like nations in an uproar and peoples devising a vain thing and kings of the earth taking a stand against the Lord and his anointed. And David could say, and they're doing it against me. So Psalm 3 highlights adversaries and them mocking him. There's no deliverance for you in God. Psalm 4, answer me when I call, relieve me in my distress. Psalm 5 opens up. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh, consider my groaning, heed the sound of my cry. Why? Because adversaries and enemies of David are both at his neck and against God's glory. Verse or chapter 6 kind of hits the low point of all low points. In the middle of the night, he's not looking up to praise. In the middle of the night, his head is down as he says he is weary with sighing. And every night, I make my bed swim with what? Tears. My eyes have wasted away with grief. Why? It's become old because of all my adversaries. Are you catching the tone of these opening psalms from David in what's supposed to be this wonderful songbook for Israel? How about a lineup like this on a Sunday morning? When's the last time you sang a lyric about, I have made my bed full of tears because of my adversaries? But see, the wonderful thing about the songbook is it has a remedy for every malady of your soul. That's why we love the psalms. In the 150 of them, you find every nook and cranny of your personal human existence, your problems, your issues addressed by a person just like you. And even this morning, Psalm 8 will minister to you, maybe who have a restless spirit, who are wondering this very day, what am I here for? I'm getting ahead of myself. Psalm 7, another psalm of, save me, O God, from those who pursue me. Psalm 7.1. So in each psalm, you have right out of the gates, David showing his cards like, this is the life of a person of God, always seeming to be up against adversaries and enemies. And yet Psalm 8 raises our gaze and says, no, our solution is to praise God. But it doesn't take away the fact that these enemies look. Verse 2, but see the difference in Psalm 8 versus the preceding Psalms is God shows his hand. Here's my solution. In all of my immensity, I'm going to show you my invincibility. Let's look at Psalm 8 verse 2. God's invincible plan to defeat his enemies is... What's it there in verse 2? Praise from babies. What? I think that's, thank you. I got an amen from one of them. <laughs> the rest of you are like, oh, let me think about that one for a second. And yet a child, a child, he says, a mouth of an infant, a nursing babe, you use their Praise to establish your strength. Now, I know Proverbs are designed to make you think, to chew on for a while. Psalms are designed to make you praise. But sometimes a psalm needs to make us think as well, like this line. How does God show his invincibility by the praise of infants and nursing babes? That's an amazing statement. Babies can win over bad guys. Well, let's just look and think. From, first we know it's from the mouth. He's not talking about some supernatural baby power. Like He's not putting a sword in their hand and whoosh, into the battle lines they go. Um, he could. It's the crazy thing about God, isn't it? He could. God's so powerful. I was talking to my kids about this at the beach. Um, we were singing a lot of and reading a lot of psalms about the sea at the ocean. And the sea oftentimes in Scripture is a picture of man and his depravity. Like when we were in Daniel chapter 7 and the beasts rise out of the sea. It happens in Revelation as well. So sometimes it's this collective idea of the depraved humanity. And I was saying to them, you know how powerful Christ is? One man. That if, if the 
if all the sea was all of humanity ever created and they hated God and they all came at him at once and he was standing between our house on the shore between all of the ocean of the worst of the worst coming to get us I said who would win who would win Christ would win so he can win putting a sword in the hand of an infant. But that's not how he does it. He wins by putting a word of praise in the mouth of an infant in a nursing babe. So how does that work? We've got to teach our babies more songs? No, he's, he's, he's representing this idea that goes back to Genesis 1. What we were created for. Worship. Worship. To understand Psalm 8 is to know that David is basically just putting a song to Genesis 1. If you follow the structure of it. The middle of this psalm in verse 4, the actual uh, syntactical middle is, what is man? Well, what is man in Genesis 1? You know. We looked at it a month ago. Male and female created in his image. He's the high point and crown of creation. Well, we don't start at our high point, do we? Where do we start? Circle of life. That's where you all started, worshipers. Now does it make sense? How's God winning his war for worship in the world forever since the beginning of time? How's he doing it? Worshipers. And where do worshipers come from? It's true. Did you start a different way? You didn't. Did, did you at some point design or rewire your, your natural propensity at some point in your life to just say there's something more out there for me to want to praise and exalt in? No. It's all of grace. Your first birth and by absolute your second birth. All of it is God's grace to you. And this is how God <laughs> makes the enemy and the revengeful cease. He keeps winning the war by what? Producing more worshipers. He wins with praise. He doesn't need man's machinery, weapons of modern warfare. Men, he doesn't need machinery, weapons of modern warfare. How God wins is worship. That's a true man. There's a lot of other parts of being a man. But at the heart of a true man is a worshiper of Yahweh who will win by the power of the Word of God, the gospel preached. And God just keeps bringing more babies into the world who, made in his image, are wired to praise. So the invincibility of God to silence his enemies starts with babies. It gives new pack to the punch of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Or Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to who? Infants. Psalm 8, 2, coming into a little more clarity now this morning on the invincibility of God, how he wins with worship. Now, I... Do know that some of you in your mind are going, but wait, Adam, we know that also a baby can one day be an enemy of God. It's true. Which makes God's providence and sovereignty over salvation all the more amazing. Ever since the garden and the attempt of Satan, his Satan's primary goal in life to destroy God, to destroy the worship of God, is a failing effort at its fundamental starting point, which is God can continue to produce generation after generation after generation 
worshipers. That's why the sanctity of life is so precious when you find that implication out of verse 2, isn't it? Why we want to protect the unborn child. We're protecting a worshiper. One created in the image of God from conception. The ongoing war of sin versus righteousness is one in a simple fact. Life outpaces death. And so praise goes on in the fulfillment of God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply to his glory. With every new baby born comes the opportunity to be born again. And though the enemies of God multiply, they will die, they will perish, but God's children keep going. And so Psalm 8 shows... It can start with the smallest sigh of an infant to drown out the biggest and boldest blasphemies of wickedness in our sin-cursed world. Think about that. It's, it's the, just the, the you, you hold a newborn baby lately and just listen to that little sigh and hear that little cry. And eventually, in the middle of the night, hear them playing Legos. And instinctively go, ugh, but then go, yes. What a grace gift. A worshiper. Psalm 8 shows that that small sigh drowns out the biggest and boldest blasphemies of wickedness in the world. And I want to show you an example of this from this past week. First, I want to show you the White House. And this past week for Pride Month, the original image of God being marred and mocked by the LGBTQ movement and supported by the most powerful man in U.S. government. A slap in the face to the Creator. And in all twists of irony, to use the word pride. Completely fits, doesn't it? And that is disheartening to Christians. It is disheartening. Not for any political reasons. Fundamentally for a theological reason. We and every person in that picture. Why your first instinct should be mercy and compassion. Because created in an image of God doesn't go away. It's disheartening and it can make us think all is lost. But I want that image to be supplanted by this next image. While that was going on there, this is what was going on here. From the mouths of children, praise was being given to God our Creator. And according to the truth of Psalm 8 and verse 2, only one of those will last. Only one of those will last. The White House, or whatever house, House of Parliament, the, eventually one day the house of, of all the world, that, that first picture may one day represent the world. But it won't represent this church or any of God's church as long as there is what? Worshippers. That's his weapon. Worshippers. From, from the weakest. David is just saying, when I think of your glory and majesty and, and the immensity of your glory and all of those who would want to stand in opposition to it, you know what just, just drives a stake into the heart of that wickedness is worship. And it starts with the weakest. Starts with the weakest. That should give us such encouragement and inspiration to do what? Throw your life into discipleship. Parent, grandparent, or not. Are you looking around at the people God has put around you and saying, I need to raise up worshipers around me? No matter what the age, no matter if they belong to me or not. It's why we do VBS. It's not sacrosanct. You know, we just do it because we always do it. Camp abide. Youth ministry, children's ministry. Why do we do it? 
And we don't do it perfectly. Some kid probably got gypped out of crackers last week, you know? Some kid's going to break his elbow at camp next week. I'm not trying to be a prophet. And it could be easy to see, yep, yep, yeah, yeah, children's ministry, youth. Okay, relax. We're not perfect. We might mess some things up. But you know what we're trying to do? Psalm 8, verse 2. That's what we're trying to do. So are you on board for that or not? Are you with us in that endeavor or not? You may be front lines going to the camp. You may be back lines praying for the camp, but be in the fight. Every new generation of worshipers born with the potential for pure and precious praise to God. That's Psalm 8, verse 2. Now, with all the thoughts on the invincibility and the immensity of God's glory, you may wonder, where do I fit into this? <laughs> this, this is something big in verses 1 and 2 happening. It's, it's beyond me. This is, this is a war that I'm just a small part in. Where do I fit in? Well, David goes there in verse 3, and he stays there to verse 8. He asks the question in verse 3, in our last point about connecting to this God. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, when I take your immensity and invincibility in, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for? What, what do I have to do with this? What part do I play? When I consider it, when I meditate on it, all these great and grandiose thoughts come to a hilt in David's heart. In light of all this, who am I? Cue the Michael W. Smith chorus. I'm looking for a reason, roaming through the night to find my place in this world. Come on, people. Like half of you are over 50. I've looked at the demographics. Okay? Like, show some love. Michael W., Stephen Curtis. It's cool. Just let it out. We take in the immensity and invincibility of God's infinite world, and we can be brought to the question of what is man that you are mindful of him? And one of my favorite preachers asked that. He goes, what's man that you're mindful of him? Not much. Just gave me a chuckle. But see, the thing is, to understand the tone of this passage and to get it right, what David says next is as important to answer that question as what he was stating prior We do uh, get to the point of asking the question of verse 4 by taking in God's immensity and his invincibility, but the answer to the question comes in verses 5 through 8. The answer actually isn't not much. Surprisingly, the the, the tone goes from those despondent vibes of uh, Psalms 3 through 7 of seeming like, whoa, these adversaries and enemies seem to have the upper hand. And then, God, uh, I'm thinking about where I fit into this whole fight and why would you even care for me? And 5 through 8, David preaches to his own soul. Again, Genesis chapter 1. You've made him a little lower than God. Now, my version NAS says God because it is the word plural name for God, Elohim. It could also be in your translation, heavenly host, because that also at times in the, New Te- or the Old Testament, it can go either way, but it really doesn't change the outcome of what he's saying. Uh, we are uh, created a little lower than God, absolutely, or the heavenly host, as in we just can't pick up and fly out of here this morning as much as we might like to. So yes, in the created order, there is something physiologically we're lower than the angels, and certainly uh, we are lower than God in his greatness, and yet, and yet you crown him with glory and majesty, and yet you make him to rule, to to subdue over the works. Your fingers, God, you just flicked out the universe with the pinky and the thumb, you know, like, boom, he creates it all. When I consider your fingers... The works of your hands, and yet you have given man to rule over, and you've even put things under his feet, and then he just goes off uh, and talks about the zoo, and looks at it and says, all these creatures around me, they were for me to rule and reign over, even though when I'm in the ocean, I know a shark can bite my arm off, and I don't think I'm going to subdue him. But yet, it doesn't change the fact that this is what you created in your image, made me to do. 
So that's where kind of what could have looked like a question uh, where David was starting to take that airplane that was flying at 30,000 feet and go for the descent. Like, yeah, what's man that you're mindful of him? We're the worst. And no, he hits another gear and goes even higher because he remembers what it means to be created with dignity while not forgetting our depravity. A word on that. Let that marinate for a second. The words dignity and depravity. Um, There can be a tendency in our reformed circles to talk about a certain flower in the theological garden that starts with a T and ends with an ulip. (laughs) T for total depravity. Sinners by nature and choice. In the words of the poet Shai Lin, cursed from our birth, sinning from the beginning, wound to the tomb, depraved to the grave, astray every day. That is one way we can talk about man, our depravity. But David has a different word in mind when you read verses 5 to 8. It seems that when he asks the question, what's man that you take thought of him? His mind goes to our dignity, not to our depravity. And that's a helpful correction for some of us. All of us, really. When we share the gospel, when we engage the lost, when's the last time you wanted to start on the um, equal playing field of we are created in the image of God with dignity and you camped out there for a while before immediately what? Just wanted to go to, you know, have you ever sinned? Have you ever broken the law? Have you ever did this? We go to our depravity, which we do need to see the perfect law of God and how we fall short of it. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall, which means at one point we were what? We were created with perfect dignity. And and the person you're trying to relate to for the sake of the gospel is to show them that you have that in you still. I don't care what you've done with your life, how far gone you think you are from God, you still have his mark. You have dignity. As different as that person is from you. They have dignity. And yes, we all have depravity. But that needs to be filled out, and it was in David's mind. He was connecting the way in which this majestic God, whose glory is above the heavens, can relate intimately with his creation, and it's because of our dignity, not our depravity. He perfectly created man in his own image, and he loves him personally. He crowns him gloriously. He exalts him graciously. And yes, with that comes Genesis 3, our depravity. But all I'm saying, and I need to remember it more than anybody, is to be wary of losing sight of dignity because depravity isn't the only ingredient in the biblical recipe of man. A diet of biblical anthropology whose intake consists only of depravity will become spiritually anemic over time. Just as... A diet of talking only about our dignity will produce a spiritual obesity, if you want to look at that as a recipe. You will be malnourished to live your life thinking only about the depravity inherent in man, and you will stuff yourself full of yourself if only always thinking about our dignity. Make sense? A balanced diet. Dignity does precede depravity in the redemption story, and dignity will be restored. Completely and perfectly in the end. In the meantime, how is it restored? By Christ. Becoming a true worshiper. And that's really what brings us to the answer to David's timely question. What is man that you take thought of him? How can we become all these things you've created us to be? Can we really be crowned with glory and majesty and rule over the works of your hands and and, and have this image of God in us in its fullness? Well, the truth about the hope for a depraved man to regain dignity forever. David didn't know fully. No prophet did. But David was onto something in this psalm about a, verse 4, a son of man regaining what all sons of men lost. He was onto something. But 1 Peter says that the prophets, they, they spoke of something they couldn't quite get. And here is David speaking about someone he couldn't quite get. He, 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 he can say that, yes, we have something still in us, that you care for us, but, but left to ourselves, we've lost the crown. How is it restored? 
Well, we actually have the New Testament to find the answer for us. Three times this psalm is directly quoted in the New Testament, and it brings the answer of ultimate fulfillment to David's question of what is this man and how does he have this, this image restored? The first time it's answered is by Jesus. Matthew 21, 16. This would have been one of those passages in Luke 24 when he meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he went back and showed him and what? In the Old Testament, all the passages that spoke of him, Psalm 8 would have been one of them. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 in Matthew 21 when he has entered the city and he has received the praises and hosannas and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and then he goes and clears the temple. In verse 15 of Matthew 21 when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done. Matthew writes, he, these wonderful things he has done, what he is teaching, what he is doing and, and people are praising him and the children, Matthew notes, the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. What did these chief priests, these intelligent, mature, zealous, religious leaders see? They became indignant to the children and said, do you hear what they're saying? Tut, tut. And you know what Jesus' answer is? Do you know about the invincibility of God's praise in Psalm 8? So he says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Well, Psalm 8, David is talking about Yahweh, my Adonai. And Jesus says, Yahweh, my Adonai is happening right now in front of you. And because of the hardness of your hearts, you're missing it. It's a word to the religious. You know, Psalm 8 seems to be a word to the enemies and adversaries of the false gods. And yet here in Jerusalem, Jesus' homecoming to the temple he rightly should fill. The brightest and the best were blaspheming. And he says to them, you know, three things. Um, I'm this God. You're wrong, and the kids are right. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. Fulfillment of Psalm 8, not just in him quoting verse 2, but he made the enemy and the revengeful silent. First time it's mentioned, pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 8. The other two passages move from the cross to the victory after, and you could just jot these down and read them later. Hebrews 2, 5 and 8, or 5 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28, all tell the same story. Jesus is the only and ultimate man who can fulfill the biblical mandate to rule perfectly. What Adam failed to do and we failed to do, Christ fulfilled. And so in those two passages... Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28, again, for your study on your own. They show us that there is no perfect ruling and reigning man, but Christ fulfilled that and can restore us into what? A relationship with God, which is the beginning of us having any ability to do this for His glory and not our own. So I'll maybe ask you a question along these lines today. When you think about Psalm 8 and all of this fulfillment coming in Christ and Him restoring us to what we were made to do from the beginning, picture yourself under the sky and ask, do I stand under a dark sky with no hope of the dawn shining in the morning? Or can I see in that darkness a single light, the bright morning star who is the light of the world? He is the light that came into the world. And we all stand under one of two skies this morning. One is pitch black, and you can try to light it up with all the, the counterfeit lights that you can find, but it won't last if you don't have the one bright morning star shining in your world, and it's Christ. And you need Him and Him alone to restore you to who God made you to be in His image, fully dignified. 
and all of your depravity taken away by his righteous life and his death in your place. On a Father's Day, a word to all lost men, all lost women, and all lost children, to know God the Creator as your intimate Father. There is only one name under heaven and on earth among men by which you may be saved. Jesus Christ. He's who this psalm pointed to. And he is the fulfillment of it. And he calls you to put your faith in him now. Because he alone is worthy. For he alone saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the power and wonder of your word. And we pray that our hearts would be lifted high to you this morning, seeing that all of our hope is in Christ. And that we can not have to wait till this evening to look out to the night sky and question what is, who am I that you would take thought of me amongst the immensity of your universe and the invincibility of your redemption? That you would want to know me intimately and restore that relationship with you through Christ. And you can do that for the sinner here right now if they would turn to you in faith and trust in your Son as Savior. You can give that faith to the youngest in here as well as the oldest, and we pray that they would respond. Save, O oh Lord, we ask. For the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray.